Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape Conversations with Chris Thompson and Professor Benjamin Dwyer. Ben is a prolific Irish performer and composer, as well as an educator. He's currently Professor of Music at Middlesex University and so much more. But enough for me for now. Ben, tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, as far as being a musician, I should first and foremost say that music was never offered to me as a subject in school. I went to a Christian Brothers school in Dublin and studying music was simply not on the cards. I often think I did my leaving service when I was 16, perhaps too young, and I did okay, not amazingly well. But I felt that the school, the atmosphere in that particular school was not very conducive to education and I often feel like schooling was the only interruption to my education. So I started educating myself as soon as I left school and that meant reading again and um, then I discovered the classical guitar. I had already been playing the electric guitar but when I heard somebody play the classical guitar I was immediately transfixed. And I never really turned back from there. I went and took my own guitar lessons and then I got into the College of Music and I became rather obsessive, um, seven, eight hours practice a day. Um, I had a lot of catching up to do, but I worked very, very hard. I must have been a very serious young boy, I don't know. But by 18, I'd won the Feshkul. So that indicated to me that I was making progress. Certainly dedicated, absolutely dedicated. I, I can't account for it now. <laughs> but um, yes, I once I had decided, and you know, it wasn't coming from any member of my family or my parents. There was no pressure. I just realised that music was something, classical music was something that I needed to do. And I understood at an early age that one had to develop technique. And so that became my priority. That's quite a story. So there were no other members of your family who were interested in music? No, no, it... no background other than on Sundays, my father would have friends over to listen to tenors, mostly tenors. You know, it was a rather male-orientated gathering, although Maria Callas and um, Joan Sutherland were allowed some performances in our household, but it was mostly Benjamino Gili and Caruso and... Um, Mario Lanza and I would get to pour the bottles of Guinness and um, and pour the the Jemison whiskey um, and so my, my, my father's friends could listen in ecstasy to their favourite singers. So you'd had access as it were to classical music I sometimes wonder where I got my love of the, the written word and the spoken word. And then I realised that I had such access to, shall we say, the authorised version of the Bible, which kind of occupied my parents' life a lot. I learnt to just listen to the rhythms and the shapes of words and the language. And when I came to read Shakespeare later on, it wasn't a problem to me. So I think maybe we, we are influenced in strange ways sometimes by our backgrounds. I mean, my, my, my parents or my father's friends were not musically educated, but they had very good ears for music. They spoke about phrasing. They spoke about the quality of Gili's voice, the differences between um, Yossi Björling and Gili. 
and they would they would you know they would be going into comparative listening they didn't call it that but they were very um if you like self-educated about these areas after you finished your education or not that we ever finish our education but uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about how it's developed to the point where you are now all my work was really working by myself i had i had teachers but it really it was i was self-driven i had to wait four years for a degree course in performance to come and i eventually was part of the first experimental group to have that in in this country we were eventually um, given our degrees by trinity college and as soon as that was finished i immediately enrolled for a position for a master's degree position in the Royal Academy of Music in London which I was very pleased to get and that opened up a whole new world for me because um, I was a rather big fish in a small pond in in Ireland but once I went to London I realised that actually now I was in international grounds and the quality and playing of my colleagues, including at that time the great Brazilian guitarist Fabio Zanon, who is now performing my second guitar concerto in Brasilia in June this next year. So we Oh that must be wonderful. That must be quite well, we quite, some, quite now, something. Yes, we know each other. We've, we 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 maintained our friendship for years, but it was obviously a very rich uh, year for because many of those guitarists um, are still professionals. And of course, I got to study with Julian Bream on a number of occasions, with John Williams, who came in, uh-huh. and David Russell, all the great classics, uh, the great classic players. Um, and that was hugely inspirational for me. Now, I suspect I've probably become focused on those two, particularly scenes from A Crow and Umbilical, as I'm familiar with the source material. Now, I found the Ted Hughes poems quite difficult when I was studying poetry in my teens and twenties, but I've really come to appreciate them much more now. But how do you become drawn to your musical poetic interaction with your choice of themes? Yes, I mean, many composers wish to compose music which is purely abstract, and that's absolutely fine. You know, as Stravinsky said, music means nothing but itself. And I have done that on many occasions. But uh, more and more I felt myself drawn to extra musical themes. And I think Ted Hughes was the big opening of the door for me in, in that. Because I was reading Ted Hughes a lot. I was writing poetry. I was thinking, not of being a poet, but I was very interested alongside my musical studies. I was always very interested in poetry. And I had read the the Hawk and the Rain and Lupercal and Woodwow. And then suddenly I came across Crow and it the flick knives were out as far <laughs> as I, I I never came across English like this. And I was quite physically blown away by the mu- uh, by the poetry. And of course, I needed to understand what this Crow character was, and then that meant studying mythology, finding more out about Ted Hughes and his obsessions, you know. And so it went from there. Um, I wrote this, at that stage I was composing. I had done a PhD in Queen's University, and I was on my way as a composer-guitarist. I wrote this piece for um, a great recorder player called Peter Wells, 
and it became the central movement of what eventually became Scenes from Crow, which is a 45-minute work. And then once I had that initial Crow piece composed, I was finding out more about Hughes and Crow and mythology, and I felt that piece had to be just expanded and expanded and expanded until it became Scenes from Crow, a seven-movement work, which is quite substantial. Yeah. It is. It's. I have listened to it and it just grabbed me. One of my greatest influences is a link effectively between the two when at uh, around 16, a very enlightened teacher, English teacher, decided to take uh, the class, the A-level class to the uh, Old Vic to see Oedipus Seneca, which is, was translated by Ted Hughes. I think that changed my life. It was one of those moments that just made me look at theatre and words themselves in a different way. I think you're right about the words themselves because if you even go to another translation that Ted Hughes did, the Ovid um, works, his book called Ovid, from from those stories, and he has this way of electrifying language. He doesn't try to be academic. You know, he uses words like electricity in obviously Mm. it's sort of out of context but it's absolutely perfect to get the idea across so he's he's a great experimenter in language he's a a really a language poet Eliot talks about the energizing of language how one word can hold a whole world of meaning that will expand and expand I think it's this 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 whole notion of the power of language you know, you're probably aware that when, in the 50s and 60s when Ted Hughes arrived on the scene, English poetry was dominated by the movement. Mm-hmm. Poets like Larkin, and, and, it's, and, and Larkin's an excellent poet, by the way, I think. But Hughes arrives, and he, it's like as if he's coming from some medieval past, you know? Um, the movement's poetry was all very uh, well-behaved poetry, post-war, not being too expressive, uh, writing nice verse and then Ted Hughes comes out with with the hawk and the rain with poems about violence and animals and the earth and horses and the mist and it was like I think it was that that attracted me and and I think then in many ways it affected me as a composer you know because I wanted to be that expressionist as a composer mm-hmm. it, it helped me form my own radar signals so well, Sheila and the gigs. So we really should get to talk about them. The inspiration behind your recent composition, Sacrum Profanum. Now, how did you come to be drawn to these wonderfully enigmatic carvings? Well, I always knew about Sheila and the gigs, you know, even as a, as a child. I think most of us come across the term or we've seen one and then we, we move on. We don't pay too much attention. But one day I was in um, Kilkenny in Roth House there and they have a an amazing sheen in the gig there in a, in a glass case, very enigmatic. And I just said to myself, this is very strange. And of course, this is the, this is my post Hughesian phase. I, I, I've already studied Hughes and myth. And I was trying to figure out, okay, here's something about Ireland's myth, Ireland's mythology that nobody seems to know the answer to because they were so enigmatic, so sexualized. You know, mm-hmm. so ex- and quite and in their way, quite controversial for a wide number of reasons. For years, they would they would only show them with nappies on in the museums. I mean, bizarrely, um, or else they were hidden down in, in the basement of the museums and not shown at all. 
you know of course that was during the the, the you know the strong catholic ethos of our particular type of catholicism in ireland and that sort of conservative uh, society that we've we've had up until quite recently so in any case i got into my car and i started searching for others and i found three more that day and then the next day i went off and i found others and i didn't stop searching for them for about eight years i sketched them photographed them i spoke to their keepers elderly women who had them had them placed into grottos instead of the Virgin Mary, you know, <laughs> priests who who allowed themselves some space to hold on to them and look after them, you know, progressive priests, farmers, unemployed people who just used to like them and used to have job. And just even meeting the people who who looked after them was a journey in itself, you know, mm. um, and that went on for many years. I mean, on and off for many years. Um, but I never let go of the bit. And again, I did further studies in, in um, iconography, further studies in uh, Renaissance and medieval um, statuary, you know. And eventually I saw the Sheila perhaps as an, an opportunity to see Ireland as a witness. You mm, know, mm. and what would... If Sheila was there for about a thousand years, if not more, what would she have seen? Mm. So I began to see Sheila as witness, witness to English colonialism, witness to um, restrictive Catholic edict, to institutional religion, the suppression of women. And of course, she's a great female icon displaying the vulva in the most explicit way that she does. And she's also abject, you know, She's emaciated. She, she shows often. great voluptuousness yeah. with her uh, vulva, but she's emaciated in other parts of the body. And then I began by um, understanding Michael Bakhtin's understanding of the the cosmic icon. She is all seasons in the one season. She represents death and birth. So she's a movable feast. It's not just a piece of sculpture. It's a way of understanding how to live in the universe. Yeah, I mean, your paper, the one that accompanies the CD presentation of Sacrum Profanum, they convinced me that I may well have been neglecting the significance of Sheila and the Giggs. Uh, no, I've changed my mind completely. I, I, you've given me a real opportunity to look at them, what they are for themselves. And I think it's really important. Some of the major publications on on the Sheila and the Giggs are all stating that they are no they, they, they appear no sooner than 1100 that they were brought to Ireland from Europe as some sort of um, um, roughened version of the Corbel, central European Corbel tradition but these these Sheila and the Giggs were not carved by um, professional you know masons or stone mm. carvers um, they were carved by artisans for the local communities. You can see, you know, because some of them are very poorly carved. So if they're poorly carved, they must be serving some other purpose other than aesthetics. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's it's very it's very strange in some ways. So they have to be serving some sort of communal function, and because they were taken away and broken. Um, they're found on churches, some 11th century churches, but a lot of those 11th century churches were built on previously pagan sites, 
you know. So we don't know. The date of the church cannot date the Sheila necessarily. But it is quite a conundrum in some ways. The early Irish texts, they were regarded in much the same manner because they were described as being low of tone and having no literary value whatsoever. So I'm afraid the early Irish texts were also, until the 20th century effectively, regarded with just as little interest, at least by English classicists. Maybe also these same neoclassicists may have found the Sheenan gigs aesthetically troubling. Their classical training might have only offered examples such as the Lemire or the uh, snake-headed Gorgon, the evil, lustful female monsters to be destroyed by the noble hero. And these wonderful, simple, deep artisan carvings were given little chance under the all-pervading influence of neoclassicism. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. The, the whole lesson that I've learned about studying the Sheila is that it's all about how, if you like, um, masculinist institutions have created the narratives for these. Um, the English colonialists create the narratives about the Irish. The church creates a narrative about women, you know. And at what stage do, do the underdogs get to create their own narrative? That's the question, you see. At one stage, the Sheilas were used by the church. That's why some of them are found over the, the doorways in churches, to bring the pagans into the, into the mother church. But at a later stage, then, they become the hag, the, the stone whore on the wall, you know, and then mm -hmm. they have to be desecrated and thrown into rivers and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it was an idea that I had was to just for once allow the Sheila be the witness of all this prescription on her. Yes. You've really made me think again about my ideas concerning the Sheenana gigs. I, I suppose I was cautious because the archaeological evidence didn't seem to place him in their present form before the Irish medieval period. And there's no sense of such imagery in the te early textual stories or the later retellings. The term Kaliak turns up in later medieval texts, say 15th century-ish. She's really just a stronger, older female poet, more like Fulmnot, or, above all, the Morrigan. I suppose the trouble is that Kaliak has really only means older woman. And unfortunately, this is the real problem, that the old women have become negatively connected with malevolence, um, particularly in Scottish folklore, but it, you find it everywhere, or the Kaliak, the hag. Um, but... Sheila Nagik has a very, very different and separate background and it's it's telling us something different, but she's been treated just the same yeah, as the hag. I mean, I mean, there's the whole period in which uh, women were treated as witches, you know? Mm. Their sexuality was something that had to be controlled and regulated. And when they, when they were older, they became kaliaks and hags mm. and, and things like mm. this. Again, all these these nominations are created by men and patriarchal mm. societies. Old, older men become elders and uh, seniors. Older women become caliacs or hags. Exactly. And, you know, as an older woman, I still notice a little of this today. It's getting better, but it's not perfect. You know, it's, uh, it's still there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we still have, up until recently, if we think of, uh, Savita Halapaniver, you know, this um, 
Indian Irish lady who died in the Galway Hospital over a decade ago for reasons that we all know. So these mm-hmm. battles still need to take place. This this finding a, a place for women to be in, in society properly and on equitable, equitable terms with men. Maybe we could find a better example in the position of women in pre-Norman Irish society, for instance. It's clear from the narrative as well as the law text that women's rights in that society were upheld better than in many other past societies. Women of the correct status, it's true, could be rulers in their own right. Think of Mether, for instance. Or, of course, powerful poets, healers, lawgivers. In the stories, it's told that most of the Ulster warriors, including Cahullan, were taught their best feats by the warrior woman Skahuk. I think Ireland was a good model for the time. Well, um, my, my, my understanding of this was helped by my previous work on Ted Hughes, who we were speaking about earlier, because he was absolutely convinced that the shift from matriarchal societies to patriarchal societies was a major mistake. The whole Cartesian um, science-orientated existence that we developed after Descartes was a mistake. That um, and in particular reformist Christianity, which actually airbrushed our you know women more out of the um, out of the narrative of Christianity, was even a further mistake. So it he, he was always the whole thing about Crow. Incidentally, is he's trying to he's trying to come back and make a connection with the feminine again, but he's a man. He's a male. And he keeps making the male mistakes, <laughs> you know. Unfortunately, that piece was never finished. Crow is an unfinished piece because of the two deaths, uh, Sylvia Plath and mm. um, um, Asia Wevel. Yes, of the course. second death stopped that piece from from finding its 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 connection between the feminine and the masculine. So it remains a fractured piece, which is why it disturbs a lot of people still. But this whole thing of um, um, a patriarchal, phallocentric um, society, which we still have, um, as far as Hughes was concerned, this was a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've still got quite a long way to go in, in certain terms. And, mm. you know, the- I also get occasionally a bit prickly about the classically inspired tendency to attach specific functions to Irish culture heroes. I mean, for instance, if they did have such functions, we'd probably have a recognisable god or goddess of mud, and we don't. But I think I'm just slightly nervous about categorising Sheila's as ancient Celtic goddesses. I find that a bit reductive. I think actually they're, they're more interesting than that. Well, I'm really glad that you said that because... Around the time or just before Riverdance, we have become very, very good at reinventing ourselves in rather, I would say, rather crass, um, uh, commercialized ways, you know. And mm, one element agree, of this actually. has been the, the reinvigoration of the so-called, inverted commas, goddess, which tends to be redheaded and stylized and always beautiful, never old, incidentally. You know, it's, it's kind of a stylized, stylized Celticism. And I, I think, on the contrary, the Sheila the Gig is, is anything but. She's ugly. She's abject. She's turning herself inside out. She's not stable. She's not a beautiful image. 
she goes against the centuries of men painting the female form uh, as a thing of beauty, objectifying the female form. She, she stares back at the male artist's eye, you know? She's mm, anything do, yeah. but goddess in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the way that Celtic goddesses have been, um, have been created in the last 30, 35 years. You know, so that's why I, I I'm and, and and there are some books on Sheila Nagin that incorporate that sort of language, and I don't, I haven't looked at those books. I'm not very interested in those books. I looked at very specific ones. You know, you know, there's there was a recent trend of creating Sheila Nagin's all over Dublin. These little statues, and again, they are stylized, attractive, again, objectifying Sheila's. The exact opposite to what the Sheila was meant to be, I think, which was mm. to, to, to inform communities. Can you imagine what it would be like to try and, you know, to live in the Irish weather in the 1600s or in the 1100s or even earlier? You know, the, the, can you imagine the, the, the life expectancy would have been very low. You would have been exposed to the weather. You would be depending on the land for, for, for um, survival. So you needed an icon that told you about uh, regeneration, sex, mm. life and And death. the realities of life. The realities of life. And the realities of life are all in the Sheila Nagig from the birthing to the, to the dying. It's all yeah. there in the one image. And so I'm, this is, I'm reckoning this is, she was an important figure in what I imagine were perhaps small Gaelic communities. She's a, a realistic image. I describe her somewhere as incapable of euphemism. If you live in rural Ireland, especially in a week like we're having, where it's freezing cold every day, yeah, it's cold. And, you know, every day you have to get up and find warmth or find food. We, we worry about one week, but that's what it would have been like all winter for a lot of people. Yes. You know, it's... <clears throat> I mean, in Inish Murray, off the coast of Sligo, there's um, a graveyard where, and there's a birthing stone by the graveyard where women were sent over. Now this birthing stone is, is a phallic, it's like a stone phallic um, item um, made of granite that um, the female would hunker and hold on to while having her baby. But she's looking into the graveyard. It's, mm. it's placed right beside the grave because she probably wouldn't make it through the birth. You know? So she's looking at the graveyard while she's creating new life. She's looking in the graveyard. That's a very powerful image. That's what women had to do. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it was a matter of life and death. They are a symbol of, of real everyday life. And it's death. what life is about. Yeah. And women were always the ones who knew what life was really about because they had to live it. They had to give it and they had to live it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't care how old they are. And although they appear, yes, they appear in Wales and in England, I think they have a very, very special place in Ireland. They do. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's about 110 in Ireland and there's about 45 in Britain. Mm. Mostly mm. found near or on monastic sites. Think of that what you will. They were perhaps protected by monks or 
they 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 were secreted by monks perhaps but they're nearly all found near monastic sites which i think is very interesting too i do find it interesting and and i think people also forget particularly if you grow up in england just how important irish monasticism was to early christianity all over the uk but particularly in the north and uh, scotland um but that's another story entirely but you've really made me th- think about it a lot more. If I can quote your website description, Sacrum Profanum emerged out of an intensive engagement with the Gaelic carvings known as Sheenanagigs, and it situates the Sheila as witness to Ireland's colonial history, the destruction of its Gaelic traditions and attempts by various powers, power structures to control the untamed power of the female body. And that's what you've been explaining. Sheila Nagig as witness. And really, she is the story in the landscape. She speaks for herself. It was when I realised that I could selfishly, if you like, use her as a witness. It made so much sense. She's been there watching this. And there is this thing, all Sheilas have this enigmatic stare. They always stare back. And it's one of the most powerful elements of them. So then is what would she have seen? And then 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 you realize, you know, um well I realized how I could move forward as a composer. You know, that helped me tremendously. So, I mean, the music is rather explicit in places. I also wanted the music to sound like the way she looks. Mm. Rough, rugged, beautiful, ugly, um, not very refined. But, but coming, exciting. But coming with a deep message, you know. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I include the oldest Irish instrument that we have today, which is the early medieval harp played by Siobhan Armstrong, which is the the original harp that they have in in Trinity College, uh, known as the Brian Brew harp. And that is the oldest instrument. That is the sound that goes back furthest in Irish musical culture. So to have that as part of my troupe alongside electronics is is a kind of a mixture of today's, you know, technological developments and the most ancient Irish musical sound possible, apart from the female voice, of course, singing shanos. Oh, it's, it's, we'll talk about the music itself just in a minute, but I was just thinking about something you said earlier, and Ireland needs those witnesses after the hatchet job that's been done on it over the centuries. I mean, we both have a particular dislike of uh, Henry II's, how do I describe him, twisted propaganda monger, you know, Geraldus Cambrensis. And I know you, you refer to him indirectly in the music through uh, Expugnatio. Well, you see, whether it was um, Geraldus or Edmund Spencer or whoever, there were people from, well, he was Welsh in fact, but from the colonialist side who were writing propaganda to dehumanise the Gael, you know? And if we are wild and unkempt and uncivilised, well, it doesn't matter if we lose our language, if we lose our music, if we lose our institutions, if we lose our own... We had our own... Independence. Breton laws. We had mm. um, one of the oldest vernacular languages in Europe. We had a fine bardic tradition. We had our own system of kings and aristocracy and kings and, 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 and so forth. All that was completely wiped out. The connections have been deliberately cut and it goes back so far. 
Geraldus Cambrensis telling the English that the Irish, oh, they, they, they're lazy, they drink too much, they, they can't even make bread, they don't understand cheese, they sit around and uh, do nothing all day, they have no connection with the continent, oh, they have no metalwork skills. That was another thing he said, wasn't it? Every skill and beauty that they had was deliberately denied. It, yes, it, but that sort of written statement... It's marking us. And Edmund Spencer did the same much later, he more did. eloquently. Yeah. These poets, wonderful wordsmiths, set the scene for our destruction. And it continues to this day. Comments about the Irish in England. You know, things are a lot better than they used to be. You know, it was only in the 70s when it was not uncommon to see the signs, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. I grew up in Kensal Rise, which is within walking distance of the Kilburn High Road. In the 60s, I remember those signs. So it's within your level. I never saw them, um, mm. although I did see in 91 a sign similar to that in, in Milton Keynes on a bus stop. Yeah. So, and this is how one people are dehumanised by another, you know? And you can see it happening in, in the occupied territories of Palestine, for example. And unfortunately, young Israeli soldiers would be trained to do to not consider the Palestinian a fully human person. We see we saw it in mm. South Africa. We see it in America happening now. And, it, it, and it, you know, a lot of that is set up by intelligent poets and writers because they are the ones who mark us. Mm. So my piece was a way of sort of representing that, of turning that a around somehow. And um, but not trying to glamorize what happened. In fact, Serpent Profanum is a dark enough piece because I'm not, a, you know, a lot of Irish composers or American composers, when they use Irish materials, they try to mythologize again Ireland, make Ireland very, inverted commas, beautiful. They prettify landscape. it. They yeah, it's prettified, it. it's quaint, it's ancient. It. Exactly. Mm. And it's all this long continuum where, in actual fact, We've lost our language, you know. Bear we now we have uh, people are still speaking Irish, but we've lost it as a national living language. It's it's getting better, you know, and um, we lost much of the music, you know. We've lost mm -hmm. a lot. We've lost mm -hmm. a lot. Loss mm -hmm. and dispossession. I wanted that reflected in my music. I felt it would be wrong of me to write just beautiful music about what happened in the last thousand years here. I know we're both friends of Ralph Kenner. And when he was trying to base his work around the Tombo Cunha, he said that it was so little known that uh, he had to use Homer and Beowulf alongside the Tombo Cunha as a way of sneaking the toy in. On the other hand, that does mean we have escaped Brad Pitt playing Cullen, you know, which might have otherwise happened. These stories are still there to be discovered. They are. But that's probably more than you can say for the Lubicorn, who was originally a diminutive but fierce underwater warrior who guarded the treasures of land under wave. Now, they haven't been allowed to keep their status. I mean, we've, we've, we've continued, though, along those lines. I mean, how are things in Glockamara and The Quiet Man and... And at least, at least there were there were there were good scripts, and you know, and there was there was a lot of stylization, you know. But now we've become very um, good at selling ourselves as well. 
you know the 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 three goddesses or the river dance or or the lord of the dance or the celtic tenors all this nonsense which has mm-hmm. nothing got to do with Irish culture. And yet, it's having such a world impact. It does become Irish culture. I mean, this is the paradox here. But, you know, millions of people just have the wrong idea of what Irish culture is, you know, while others cash the checks. <laughs> I fear that is always the way. Exactly. But my fear is that not only is this not a close and accurate description of Irish culture, it actually airbrushes over actual atrocity and dispossession. Yeah, recently I've been listening to a series of lectures by Timothy Snyder on the history of Ukraine. And he was talking about the appalling famine and genocide that took place in the 30s under Stalin. I was realising how, in many ways, a lot of that did mirror what happened to Ireland in the 19th century In the famine, the great hunger of the 1840s, from my studies of the period, I'm only too aware that there was a good deal more involved in this matter than mere crop failure, and that the hands of the landlords and the English government of the time were very far from clean. Well, I just want to make a few points here. People often say, oh, it was laissez-faire economics. Laissez-faire economics. Seventy ships left Irish ports every day during the famine, guarded by police, by gunboats, by militia. 70 shiploads of food a day left Ireland during the famine. That wasn't laissez-faire economics. That's murder, you know? Yeah. And there's no getting out of that one. 70 ships a day taking food out of this country. It's a shocking thought but unless our historians start discussing this in more honest terms i don't think the irish are going to really understand it themselves because it's called the great hunger and it's not called the great genocide you know in in the 40s churchill went on to create there were so many created famines in india under british administration millions died and of course History is the victor's propaganda. We never get to hear of Churchill's um, crimes against humanity. He's on the the British five-pound note because Mm. they they just can't. And he's still held up as a bastion of, you know, a political icon to be admired. And I'm sorry, you know, and unless, you know, British um, historians confront those realities and unless Irish historians confront these realities, we're never going to understand who we are and why there are still troubles in the the two countries of Ireland and and England because we're not dealing with the historical truths. So I mean there is this political dimension to Sacrum Profanum which I tackle head on the movement I call expugnatio which was the Latin term the English used for the invasion of Ireland. This notion that we invited them in this is all revisionist history. They themselves called themselves the Anglis, the English, and they called their project in Ireland expugnatio, invasion. Mm -hmm. We need to start confronting that. Yes, I think you're right. And certainly Sacrum Profanum does offer a a very political viewpoint. We do need it. It's very important because I have a book of um, essays coming out now in February, and it's called Music Autopsies. Well, look... 
not every piece that we have we write has to be political but i wanted this piece to conduct a kind of music autopsy on mm -hmm. ireland through music nobody has not many people think of music that it can have this effect but of course the matthew passion is conducting of an course. autopsy on the resurrection we've we just forgotten the power of music i feel that this piece in particular and i won't write this piece again this is gone this piece is done mm. i'm never going back to it i experienced the music as exciting disturbing profound and energizing yeah all at once and what i'm suggesting is to any of our listeners just go and get the music listen to it and decide for yourselves i'll include all the links but ben would you like to tell us something of the performance of the piece? Well, I I have a, an approach to composing that I, as a guitarist composer, you know, I've learned this. I always work with great musicians. I mean, really great musicians. And then I learn from them. I steal from them. I steal their embedded knowledges. And I have a great team um, playing on Sacrum Profanum. I have the world-renowned viola player and composer um, Garth Knox, the leading um, early Irish medieval harp harpist Siobhan Armstrong, um, myself playing guitar, although I never pluck a string. I only played the guitar with a bow. I didn't want any classical guitar sounds intervening in this. I, uh, quite often, my bow and my guitar creates the abjectness that I wanted. That abject feeling, that raw, cutting, open flesh feeling. And um, and I have a great flautist and tin whistle player, um, Emma Coulthard, playing. So there's four of us playing alongside um, um, a tape part. And I must say that also my cousin, Donica Dwyer, is a great Illin piper. And we've used his wonderful playing as part of the, uh, the, the tape part as well. So it's an interesting piece to play, actually. And um, we've only performed it live three times. Um, and the last time was in London, in the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith. And it, by the end of it, it felt like we had actually conducted some sort of strange mass. It was very strange. <laughs> and of course, it ends with Siobhan singing the lament um, in, in Gaelic, um, in, in the style of a Shano singer. Yeah. And we're left with this single female voice, which in a way is carrying the weight of the entire piece. It's carrying the weight of the entire history in its voice yeah. in that last movement. Well, it's a keening. It's just, well, the music's amazing, actually. I, I can't stop thinking about it. Thank you. I was struck by something you wrote in the article, Aesthetics of Damage. You said... My engagement with Sheila and the Gigs has further underpinned my conviction that music can conduct autopsies on received historical narratives and current ideologies of power and politics. If it can, dis it can dislodge the desperate logic of therefore and thus, and it can tell things as they were and as they are, warts and all. I think that just sums it all up. Yes, I mean, this, this piece is at the service of, of conducting, if you like, through music, a historical autopsy on, on Irish history. And not just colonialism, but state institutional abuse of women, you know, um, 
state oppression, religious oppression, to try and exorcise in some way our own history through music. This can be done through novels, of course. It's done through good history books, you know, good histories. But it's not often done through music. And I felt I had then some sort of strange obligation to conduct this musical autopsy on Irish history. I think you I think Sacrum Profanum has done just that and more. I, I would recommend everybody go and listen to it. It's really thought provoking and I think a very important work. But before we finished, just one more thing. So what's next? Have you any future projects that you've got coming up as it were? I recently revised my second guitar concerto, which following this conversation it's not really about anything so sometimes you know your pieces are connected to very specific historical themes my guitar concerto is just music for guitar and orchestra so that's being performed in june in brasilia uh, with the aforementioned brilliant guitarist fabio zano and um, so at the moment i'm just renovating that i'm heading off for a, a an artist residency on inishir in early january i'm going to spend those two weeks completing that guitar concerto and making sure it's ready for performance. Well, I'm so glad you brought out Sacrum Profanum this year. It's turned out to have, I think, an even greater relevance in its autopsy of history, considering what's going on in the world at the moment. Thank you very much, Ben. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. And I know we've got a lot more to talk about. So maybe we could have another conversation uh, sometime early next year because I know I want to hear a lot more so thank you very much indeed thank you for having me Chris thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation remember on www.storyarchaeology.com you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts you can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon. <laughs>